Welcome to the CBR podcast. I'm Matt Emerson, and I'm one of the or I'm one of the board of directors at CBR. Uh, and I'm joined by Luke Stamps, who's also on our board of directors. Uh, the Center for Baptist Renewal is a group of Orthodox Evangelical Baptists committed to retrieving the great tradition for the renewal of Baptist faith and practice. And if you enjoy what you hear today, we invite you to check out our website at centerforbaptistrenewal.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at, at Baptist Renewal and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Baptist Renewal. And if you want to, please subscribe, tell your friends about the podcast. Today, we're starting off our 2022 reading challenge, and we're going to talk about Baptist Confessions of Faith. Now, this, this conversation is going to mirror just a little bit uh, how we ended 2021 with our podcast, which was to talk about uh, a couple of different Baptist works and how they related to the Christian tradition. But today we want to dive into some detail here and talk about, give you examples of really how these early Baptist confessions connect Baptist thought and practice to the rest of the Christian tradition. So Luke, why don't you get us started by giving us an overview of how we can see that in the Baptist confessions, especially with a couple of areas that we've talked about before uh, in terms of theology and practice. Yeah, so like as I read through these uh, confessions, the the book, uh, I have an older copy of the book, which I really like this canvas bound. I don't, I'm not sure what's included in the newer version of it, but um, it, what, the book starts with, with um, what it calls precursor confessions. Um, so some Anabaptist confessions, uh, and then an early uh, separatist, which was basically a congregational, congregationalist confession. Um, and then it kind of walks through Baptist history. Very, very helpful kind of overview of Baptist history as you read the introductions to the confessions and, and, and read through the confessions themselves. But as I read through these again, um, a couple of things stand out to me that are worthy of reflection. One is... Um, the, well, it's lots of things are, are interesting to me, but 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 one is how uh, the different confessions treat what we might call the classical or cardinal doctrines of the faith, the Trinity and the Incarnation. Um, and it's interesting to see some of the development from the early um, from the early confessions that are more creedal. So we, we probably need to talk about that. There's a difference between creeds and confessions. What we're reading in these. Uh, and these in this book are confessions of faith that would have been uh, localized to particular churches or particular associations of churches, uh, assemblies of churches, but they're localized. Whereas a creed is a statement of faith that would be, in a sense, the expression of the whole body of Christ across denominations. So we refer to the, the so-called ecumenical creeds of the early church, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. So when I talk about creedal, what I mean is language that reflects those early patristic uh, statements of faith. And you do have evidence of creedal language that shows up in uh, the Baptist confessions uh, early on. But as you move through history, as you kind of work your way through this book, some of that creedal language falls out and it's replaced with uh, just biblical language, which is obviously good, right? We want to be Bible people. Uh, but it, but the Bible needs to be interpreted, which is the purpose of the confession, is to give a particular interpretation of the biblical text, not just to repeat 
uh, the biblical text. And so that's an interesting development. Um, so that's one thing. And another thing that kind of stands out to me um, is the, the way that um, the Calvinism, Arminianism issue emerges uh, in the early Baptist tradition. So you, our listeners may know that the Baptist tradition kind of has two origin stories. Um, the, 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 the beginning of the general Baptist early in the 17th century with John Smith and Thomas Helwes and others that then continues in the general Baptist tradition that you see uh, with, for example, the Orthodox Creed um, and the New Connection uh, statement. Um, and then there's the particular Baptist tradition that emerges in a different context, also in, in 17th century Britain, but out of, out of a slightly different context, it was more Calvinistic, the particular Baptist tradition. So you kind of have that tension right there at the beginning. Um, that's another thing that stands out. So that early on, some of these early general Baptist uh, confessions of faith end up saying some pretty bad things on um, original sin. Mm -hmm. They're actually not even classically Arminian. They actually go a step further than that to saying something that's almost semi-Pelagian. Um, uh, about original sin. So that's another set of things that are interesting. And then lastly, the kind of third big bucket that stands out to me is how the, the confessions treat the sacraments or the ordinances. And that too, there is some variation as you work your way through Baptist history, where you early on, you have what we might consider a, a kind of more, a stronger, more robust sacramental language that echoes the language of other Protestant confessions, like the Articles of Religion, or the Westminster Confession of Faith. And then later you move away from that to a, a, a more memorial um, view of, of the, the sacraments. And we can kind of layer in some details here, but as I, as I kind of take a, a high level view, those are kind of the hot spots that stand out to me uh, of how the Baptists are trying to express their faith. Yeah, <clears throat> one of the ways that I think we both have described this is that Baptists are simply Orthodox Christians and committed Protestants in all of the various doctrines of the faith. And the distinction comes in our ecclesiology and really more narrowly with respect to polity and the ordinances. So, you know, and, and church and state. So it's a, it's a mistake. And in fact, it's just wrong to argue that every version of Baptist in, and even some versions of Anabaptist thought are, um, are attempting to produce their own movements via some kind of naive biblicism where they're disconnected from the rest of the Christian tradition. That's just simply not the case. So there are, there are those who would argue that um, all of the Anabap early Anabaptists, all of the early Baptists were uh, sort of me and my Bible kind of folks who said, we don't care what anybody else has said. We're just going to pick up the Bible, read it, and go from there. Well, that, that's just simply not true. If you read the early confessions of faith that these groups put out, many of them in various ways are attempting to connect what they say, both to historic Christianity and then also to the emerging Protestant movement, um, whether it was with, I mean, it's typically with um, the, the more Calvinian or, or reformed strand, um, even, even with the Anabaptists um, in some sense. So, you know, I, I think that that 
that's a myth that needs to be put to bed. Mm-hmm. So yeah, let's, I mean, let's, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you want to talk about this or not, but I do think uh, we need to say at least something about the inclusion of the Anabaptists here. Um, right. Cause I know that, that this is a, a debate and among Baptist historians about like the origins of Baptists, whether or not we're, do we emerge out of an Anabaptist context or is there some kind of influence of the Anabaptists? Right. So, um, or, or if it, or we just kind of completely dis- discreet movement. What, what would, what would you say about that question? Yeah. So I think it's difficult to say that early English Baptists have no connection whatsoever to the continental Anabaptist movement. Um, I think there's, there's circumstantial evidence that points to potential in-person connections. Um, there's also, of course, John Smith going and, and um, meeting with, we assume, the, the Waterlander Mennonites. Um, so there is some kind of contact. Uh, the particular Baptist most certainly did not arise out of being influenced by Anabaptists. They were separatists um, in the in the English separatism movement who became convinced of credo baptism. So, <clears throat> you know, the question really is whether or not the general Baptists are influenced by the Anabaptists. And and I think what I would say is there's a there's a at the very least a, a conceptual kinship with Anabaptists it, it, with respect to credo baptism, with respect to um, the emphasis on the local church. But there are stark differences between those two movements as well, and there's no evidence that there was direct influence and direct um, appropriation from Anabaptists for the early General Baptists. So, you know, it is important to think about the Anabaptists as we talk about uh, our Baptist heritage, simply because of that close conceptual kinship, especially as it relates to credo baptism. But I think we need to be careful about pushing too hard on that connection and trying to draw a direct line yeah, from it, it's sort of to Baptists. Yeah, it's sort of like um, how we sometimes talk about the forerunners of the Reformation. You know, sure. you know what I mean? Like yeah. uh, um, Hus or Wycliffe or whoever, people who, who came before the Reformation. The Reformation doesn't so much grow out of those, right, right. those earlier thinkers. I mean, although there, there may be some memory of, of them in, in certain contexts, but there's a, there's a kind of conceptual kinship, you know, right. um, so that once you start thinking about, well, what if the Bible and only the Bible is our authority and not the right. tradition, then you kind of end up in certain places doctrinally. There's a kind of logical progression from there to say maybe question transubstantiation or whatever. And something similar is happening here, where once you start thinking about the church as a local congregation of visible saints mm-hmm. and not just um, a kind of arm of of the particular state or place where you live. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you start thinking about like regenerate church membership, right? Mm -hmm. There, there is a, there's a kind of cluster of doctrines that we, we could, for lack of a better term, call the Baptistic set, you know, like once you start thinking about a believer's church, um, believer's baptism kind of flows naturally from that. 
right. uh, a particular understanding of how you govern the church flows from that as well. The, the relationship of the, of the church to the state is implicated in that as well. So it's, it's, it, it shouldn't surprise us um, that you, you might have two different groups and different contexts arriving at similar, uh, a sort of similar, similar cluster of ideals because they kind of hang together logically and theologically. That's right. So, yeah. Yeah. And the other, the other thing to say about the Anabaptists, and then let's jump into some particulars here. The other thing to say about the Anabaptists is that there are at least two distinctly identifiable groups of Anabaptists that are discussed by historians. So there's the biblical Anabaptists, which would be, um, you know, Balthazar Hubmeyer, uh, that group, the Swiss Brethren um, under Zwingli's care and then his oversight or at least agreement for them to be put to death um and but then there are also the spiritual anabaptists and i think the myth of this kind of naive biblicism of me and my bible comes from those who mistake the spiritual Anabaptists as representative of all Anabaptists. So the spiritual Anabaptists are the ones who, um, you know, for instance, would give rise to the, the Thomas Munster's rebellion. Um, and, you know, they say, you know, they're very clear about we, all we need is the Holy spirit and we don't need government. We don't need church polity. We, we just, we need the Holy spirit and that's it. Um, and so of course, we want to say, you know, that's not what we're, that's not our heritage. Um, there are those who, for whatever reason, want to try and take those spiritual Anabaptists and totalize that example as representative of both biblical Anabaptists and then also early British Baptists. And that's just wrong. It's historically inaccurate. It, it, it's it's just bad scholarship. So I, I think we need to just be very clear. And and again, if people will just read these confessions, so this is this is what we're talking about. These confessions of faith today. If people will just read these confessions, it becomes obvious. So let's let's dive in a little bit um, and and look at some of these. So you mentioned two categories, um, sort of classical Christian theism, which uh, we can include. Uh, doctrine of the Trinity there, but also classic Christology, uh, and then the the sacraments. So let's start with classical Christian theism, both in the doctrine of the Trinity and um, in Christology. So I've got a couple of examples in mind to start us off from the Anabaptists, because I think it's, a, I mean, I know this is the Center for Baptist Renewal, not Anabaptist Renewal, but I just, I, I think be, there's so many myths about all this that I just kind of want to dispel them here in one fell swoop. Um, first of all, if you look at the Schleitheim Confession, which is uh, sort of the earliest consensus Anabaptist theological document, um, you look down under their seventh point, which is about oath-taking. So <clears throat> when, when the Anabaptists talk about oath-taking, um, they actually give their moral sort of guidance here about it, but then they give the theological rationale for it. So if you have, if you're listening or, or watching this and you have the Lumpkin and Leonard volume, this is on page 29 at the bottom. Um, 
the, the last paragraph. Now, there are some who do not give credence to the simple command of God, but object to this question. So in other words, you shouldn't give oaths. Well, now, didn't God swear to Abraham by himself since he was God when he promised him that he would be with him and that he would be his God if he would keep his commandments? Why then should I not also swear when I promise to someone? Answer, hear what the scripture says. God, since he wished more abundantly to show unto the heirs the immutability of his counsel, inserted an oath that by two immutable things, in which it is possible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation. In other words, and they, they go on to say this a couple sentences later, God swore an oath to Abraham, says the scripture, so that he might show that his counsel is immutable. <clears throat> now, the, the, the reason I'm bringing that up is because the Schleitheim Confession doesn't have this kind of categorical walk through all of the doctrines of the faith. But here at the very end, in their last kind of moral command, they actually bring up one of the classically held beliefs about the triune God, which is that he is immutable <coughs> to distinguish between God promising to Abraham by him, by his own uh, existence, which is immutable. Therefore he cannot lie. We can trust his promises in distinction with oaths that we take as creatures. We can lie. We can fail to fulfill our promises, this sort of thing. So, you know, that's not an example of these, these Anabaptists articulating a doctrine of God, but it is an example of them relying on the kind of classical doctrine of God in formulating their ethical stances. So that's one example from the Anabaptists. The other one that I would just, point... Let me just stop. Go Sorry, ahead. Just, just for our listeners' sake. That, that's, the, the oath bit is one of the areas where the Baptists differed from the Anabaptists. So yes. The, the yeah. point here is not that like Baptists also are against oath taking. Right. That was actually explicitly one of the differences, but that they were grounding their particular view of oaths in a classical conception of God's immutability. That's right. So the other example I'll give um, one of the first <clears throat> uh, one one of the first full confessions of faith by the Anabaptists. So the Slightheim Confession is sort of just here's how we distinguish ourselves. And it really focuses on the things that distinguish those Anabaptists from other Christians. The Waterlander Confession, uh, which, you know, by all lights is probably uh, the influence over the group of Anabaptists that John Smith encountered. Uh, the Waterlander Confession is a full confession of faith. It walks through the doctrines and it begins with this article one of the unity and attributes of God. We believe and confess sacred scripture, proceeding and proving it, that there is one God who is a spirit, spirit or spiritual substance, eternal, incomprehensible, immense, invisible, immutable, omnipotent, merciful, just, perfect, wise, holy, good, the fountain of life and the spring of all good, creator and preserver of heaven and earth, of things uh, visible and invisible. So once again, you hear eternal, immutable. Um, these are these are kind of classic ways to begin talking about the uh, the doctrine of God, and then Article Two: How is this one God distinguished? This one God in sacred Scripture is revealed and distinguished into Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There are three, and yet only one God. And then this is the real kicker here in Article Three: How the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, according to this distinction, are three and one. The Father is the spring and principle of all things, who begat His Son from eternity. 
before all creatures in a manner which the human mind cannot comprehend. The Son is the Father's eternal word and wisdom through whom are all things. The Holy Spirit is God's power, might, or virtue proceeding from the Father and the Son. These three are neither divided nor distinguished in respect of nature, essence, or essential attributes, such as eternity, omnipotence, invisibility, immortality, glory, and similar things. That's, I mean, that's very clear. There's one God who exists in three persons, and the way that you distinguish between the persons is and only is by their eternal relations of origin. The Son is begat from the Father, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. That's just classical Christian Trinitarianism. And those are Anabaptists, right? Those, I mean, are, we, those are Anabaptists, yes. People, people treat the Anabaptists like they're universal, you know, sort of universal heretics or whatever. But like, no, we have like like classical Trinitarianism right here in the Anabaptists. Yeah, I mean, I would also, uh, I'm not going to keep reading these aloud, but Article 8 on the Incarnation very clearly expresses the extra Calvinisticum uh, where God the Son remains uh, God the Son in the Incarnation in terms of um, retaining or whatever you want to call it, his, his divine attributes while also taking on a human nature. So, yeah. it, you know, and, and I could go on and on. I do want to mention Article 15 talks about the descent. So that's cool. There you go. Uh, but, you know, all, all about to say, these are very clear examples of how early Anabaptists, and, and there are others that I could point you to um, in this regard, early Anabaptists even are attempting to connect themselves to the classical Christian articulation of the doctrine of God um, and of Christology. In fact, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll stop at this and then I want to pass it over to you, Luke. But um, for instance, one of the other early confessions, the Dordrick Confession, just quotes the Apostles' Creed in Article 4. So, I mean, there's just all these examples of early Anabaptists trying to tie what they're doing off to the rest of the Christian tradition, as especially as it relates to the most important parts of historic Christianity, namely the doctrine of the Trinity and Christology. So you may want to mention some other things like uh, the Orthodox Creed here, maybe, uh, or, or some other later Baptist confessions but that's those are the things that i wanted to mention yeah um as a kind of segue into the baptists then kind of those are those are reflections on these precursor anabaptist um confessions there was a um a separatist confession uh, that's also included here called the true confession of faith yeah uh, which was produced by um a group of calvinist congregationalists essentially that's they were mm -hmm. they were separatists um 1596 the reason why this confession is included and why it's so important is because this confession was the basis of the so-called first confession, the first London confession of faith, which was, a, a you know, kind of a, a early particular Baptist confession that's also included here. So the language of those two uh, run almost exactly parallel on most of these doctrines. And so um, I'll just read it from the from the London Confession. It's also there in the the, the earlier True Confession. But if you uh, flip over to the London Confession, 1644, um, you have some of the same uh, the same language about the um, about you know kind of the the classical doctrine of God, the, the classical uh, attributes, but also of the eternal relations of origin that you are describing here as well. Mm -hmm. um, let me see if I can uh, find this real quick. Um, 
that I have a different version than you, Matt, so it won't be the same page, but um, Oops. That, let me, let me, I may actually just go back to the, to the true confession because that's where I have it, have it marked. But in the true confession, um, we read um, that in this one Godhead, there be three distinct persons, co-eternal, co-equal, and co-essential, being every one of the one and same God, and therefore not divided, but distinguished from one another by their several particular properties. The father of none, so the father unbegotten, the son begotten of the father from everlasting, and the Holy Ghost proceeding from the father and son before all beginning. So that's that's language that is taken up uh, in the London Confession of Faith as well. So you have um, very clear and deliberate um, allusion to creedal language. Right. So that stuff just goes back to the to the creeds and councils of the of the early church. Yeah. And the, the same thing is true. So that, that the, the true confession that Luke just read from, as he said, is a precursor to the particular Baptists first London confession. The same kind of example we can point to is true in the general Baptist. So in both John Smith's a short confession and in then the, the revision uh, by the Hellwist party, which is also called a short confession. Um, uh, Smith includes language from Chalcedon. So in article six of a short confession, he says that Jesus Christ is true God and true man vis-a-vis the son of God taking to himself. In addition, the true and pure nature of a man. And listen to this. This is the Chalcedonian part out of a true rational soul and existing in a true human body. Okay. He, he began, he doesn't begin like Helwes does in his party, but Helwes and his party actually in their short confession start with the eternal relations of origin. So they start uh, with uh, scripture, one God, and then article three, the father is the original and the beginning of all things who hath begotten his son from everlasting word of the father and his wisdom. The Holy Ghost is his virtue, power, and might proceeding from the Father and the Son. These three are not divided nor separated in essence, nature, property, eternity, power, glory, or excellency. Yeah, so I mean, the very, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, also from the Hellwist short confession, also on the incarnation, you have a line that it's not attributed, but it's it's a line that's that's fairly common in the early church fathers. You can find it, for example, in in, uh, Hilary of Poitiers. Mm. Um, in the fourth century, but it says that he, the everlasting son of God, continuing that he was before, namely God or spirit, became what he was not, that is flesh or man. That's a very common patristic formula mm-hmm. that without ceasing to be what he was, namely God, he right. became what he was not, namely man. And you have you have that again, it's a, almost a quotation from Hilary of Fortier right, right here in Helvis's short confession. Yep, that's right. Um, so, you know, we could we could keep going here. We probably should mention um, the Orthodox Creed. And uh, I don't know if you have that pulled up, Luke. I'm, I'm yeah. kind of flipping through here. That was one of the I'm ones talking. we talked about. Yeah, that was one well, of the ones we talked about in, in okay. December. Yeah. But it, yeah, I mean, it, it it's sort of like the, um, so the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, you know, produced by the Westminster Assembly, which is Presbyterian in its orientation, um, is is then followed by um, the, sort of the other separatist groups like the Congregationalist Savoy Declaration echoes the language of the Westminster, and then the particular Baptist uh, Second London 
Confession of Faith, the so-called 1689 Confession, also echoes much of the language of Westminster with Baptist modifications. Right. But it's interesting that the general Baptist also did something similar. Um, it's, it's not exactly, it doesn't follow as closely, but there is a lot of Westminster, Westminsterian language that comes through in the Orthodox Creed, which is produced by the Midlands General Baptists. Um, it also echoes some of the language of, um, of the Articles of Religion, which Westminster Confession does as well. But uh, the thing that distinguishes this, this uh, particular confession, the, the Orthodox Creed, is it's, it's the only, it's the only um, confession of faith among the 17th century Baptist confessions that includes the full text of the three ecumenical creeds. So that's one of the things that, that distinguishes this. Now, I think we also mentioned in the previous podcast, perhaps, um, there, is a, there is a particular Baptist symbol, the, um, the Orthodox Catechism, which was compiled by, uh, by uh, Hercules Collins. It was a kind of Baptist version of the, um, the Heidelberg Catechism. And it, too, includes the full text of the three ecumenical creeds. So there you have an example, both among the general Baptists, the Orthodox Creed, and the particular Baptists, the Orthodox Catechism, that includes the full text of the, of the, the three ecumenical creeds, the Nicene, the Apostles, and the Athanasian. Uh, and so it's just a very intentional, right? very deliberate attempt by both general and particulars to say we, we're, we're staking our claim with historic Christian orthodoxy. Now, the side note on those two is that the reason why that was necessary is because there were challenges to that in both Baptist uh, groups. So it's not, we're not trying to suggest that Baptists never had a problem with heterodoxy. Right. They did. But they were also the, the majority, anyway, in the 17th century of both of these groups were trying to say, no, we want to stake our claim with historic Christian orthodoxy. Now, the yeah, general yeah. Baptist story kind of goes off the rails into Unitarianism in the next century. Uh, but, you know, you have here in the Orthodox Creed a, an example of just solid Christian orthodoxy. This, by the way, was compiled by uh, Thomas Monk, who we may have mentioned previously as well, um, and we're, who's on, on our list to read this year, Thomas Monk's A Cure for the Cankering Error of the New Eutychianism, yep. uh, which is a defense of all of these things that we've been talking about so far, classical uh, Christian theism, classical Trinitarianism, and classical Christology. Yeah. I, th- I think so. We need to mention briefly here uh, before before we jump to the end. Uh, we need to talk a little bit about the sacraments. But I think to to end our conversation on how early Anabaptists and Baptists were trying to tie themselves off to the rest of the Christian tradition, especially as it relates to the doctrine of God, um, the introduction to Second London is a really important um, piece. I think because and in fact, <clears throat> the same thing is true of uh, the introduction and conclusion of First London. It's true of uh, the the Standard Confession. It's true of Orthodox Creed. All of these these documents have examples where the writers, either in the introduction or conclusion or both, are like, "Hey, we're we're just trying to articulate how we're distinct, not how we're a totally different religion." You know, um, or we're not we're not trying to distinguish ourselves with respect to what everybody agrees about. We're just trying to distinguish ourselves about these, these few points. So, you know, for instance, in, in second London, um, in the introduction said this, we did, and he's talking about articulating their, their faith, the more abundantly to manifest our consent with both and all the fundamental articles of the Christian religion, 
as also with many others whose Orthodox confessions have been published to the world on the behalf of the Protestants in diverse nations and cities, and also to convince all that we have no itch to clog religion with new words, but to readily acquiesce in that form of sound words which hath been in consent with the Holy Scriptures used by others before us, hereby declaring before God, angels, and men our hearty agreement with them in that wholesome Protestant doctrine which with so clear evidence of Scriptures they have asserted. We don't want to. We don't want to make anything new up. That's not what we're trying to do. We we. In fact, we're going to use the same words as everybody else because we want to show you that we believe just like everybody else with respect to the fundamentals of the faith. That's Baptist Catholicity. Exactly. That's right there. So they, they go on to say, you know, we've taken care to affix texts of scripture in the margin for the confirmation of each article in our confession. Our earnest desire is that all into whose hands this may come would follow that never enough committed example of the noble Bereans who search the scriptures daily that they might find out whether the things preached to them were so or not. And then they, they again say contention is most remote from our design in all that we have done in this matter. And we hope the liberty of an in, uh, ingenuous unfolding of our principles and opening our hearts unto our brethren with the scripture grounds on which our faith and practice leans will by none of them be either denied to us or taken ill from us. So, you know, they're very clear. We, we want to articulate what we believe. We're in agreement with everybody else about the fundamentals of the faith. And we're Protestant in our doctrine of salvation in our doctrine of the church. But, you know, we need to talk about <laughs> polity, baptism, church and state. That, I mean, that again, like you just said, that's Baptist Catholicity right there. Yeah, let me just highlight this, and I, I'm not trying to be um, judgmental about this at all, but I just want to highlight the fact that this this is the, the preface to the 1689 Confession. Here's an exact quotation from the 1689 Confession. Um, what are you trying to say, not, there, there is one thing more which we sincerely profess and earnestly desire credence in, namely, that contention is most remote from our design. Now, I don't, I don't say that as a judgment on 1689ers. I say this as, a, as an encouragement to all of us who are Baptists um, and who sometimes have to engage in polemical conversations about these things and others, yep. Yep. Um, that contention should be the furthest thing from our design. Right. Right. Good, good-hearted, well-meaning, um, debate among Christians is good and right and healthy and helpful, but it can't spring from a heart of contention. I just wonder if that's true of us, of 1689 Baptists, or those of us, you know, like like the two of us, who we have a great admiration for the 1689. We're not strict subscriptionists to it. Um, but I just, I just hope and pray that all of us, as we interact with each other as Baptists, um, and as we interact with other groups who are not yep. Baptists, <clears throat> Um, that we wouldn't be characterized by contention. That's right. So let's be that. Let's be that kind of 1689 Baptist. Yep. So we're we're running short on time, but I'll just uh, mention a couple of things here. First of all, we could do the same thing that we just did uh, with the doctrine of God. We could do that with a number of other doctrines, including ecclesiology broadly. So what is the church? Uh, the early Baptist confessions are in agreement with other Protestant confessions about, uh, you know, if you want to use a $10 word, the ontology of the church. What is the church? This is what it is. 
Um, they're in agreement in broad strokes with Protestants in that regard, with rejecting the papacy, these, these sorts of things. Um, and they're in agreement with the, again, broad strokes, meaning and purpose of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. So uh, we don't have time to walk through the details like we did here. Um, if you're interested in that, and I hesitate to do this because I really don't like mentioning things that, that I've done, but I, I really, I have all the citations in this chapter in this book. So uh, Baptist in the Christian tradition, my chapter on Baptists, baptism and the Christian tradition you can, you can look at that chapter, and what I've done is I've taken Lumpkin and Leonard and shown all the places where the Anabaptists and Baptists use the term sacraments, not ordinances. Now, now they shift to the word ordinances uh, by the latter half of the 17th century, uh, but many, most of the early confessions in the late 16th, early 17th century were fine using the term sacrament. And even when they switched to the word ordinance, they still retain the classic language about means of grace, about, um, you know, baptism is for these things. The Lord's Supper communicates these things. Feeding um, on Christ. Yeah, feeding yeah. on Christ is a common way to express that. So, the, the, again, the early Baptists and even some of the early Anabaptists were not trying to radically depart from the Christian tradition with respect to the meaning and purpose of the sacraments or what we would call now the ordinances. Instead, what can they I, go ahead. And the same thing is true with ecclesiology. Instead, what they're doing is saying, we agree with you about who the church is, what the church is. We agree with you about what the meaning and purpose of the sacraments is. We disagree with you about who can participate in the sacraments and therefore who is a member of the church. And then further on how other churches relate to one another and then how the church relates to the state. That's the distinction. It, it doesn't lie with sort of jettisoning, jettisoning everything else the, the church has said about the church's ontology or about what the what baptism and the Lord's Supper are for. It's about who can participate um, and how in those yeah. things. Right. And just to give one example, I know we don't have time to read a bunch, but I, I wanted to at least get this one in. Uh, this is from uh, the short confession of faith that was produced by the Anabaptist, but it was signed by the Smith party, this, the John Smith Baptist. So this, the, the first Baptist, essentially, John Smith, signs a confession of faith that says this, the whole dealing in the outward visible baptism of water setteth before the eyes, witnesseth and signifieth, the Lord Jesus doth inwardly baptize the repentant, faithful man, in the laver of regeneration. So isn't that interesting? Like the, mm -hmm. referring to what's happening outwardly in baptism, God is doing something inwardly as the laver of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, washing the soul from all pollution and sin by the virtue and merit of his bloodshed and by the power and working of the Holy Ghost, the true heavenly spiritual living water cleanseth the inward evil of the soul and maketh it heavenly spiritual and living in true righteousness and goodness. Therefore, the baptism of water leadeth us to Christ, to his holy office and glory and majesty, and admonisheth us not to hang only upon the outward, but with holy prayer to mount upward and to beg of Christ 
the good things signified. That's what that was a, a, a confession of faith signed on by the earliest Baptists that refers to baptism in such strong terms. Now it's not it's not baptismal regeneration per se. It's not automatic. It's not even it's it's not even like what we might associate more with like the Stone Campbell movement, the kind of Church of Christ view of baptism. It's not any of those things. Right. But it's also saying something that is thick and rich and full and robust, that when we go under the waters of baptism, we are appealing to God uh, for the, the, the reality of what signified to be sealed to our, yeah. to our hearts by faith. And I just wonder if in, our, in so many of our Baptist churches, if we would replace what we normally do in the baptistry, which is this is just water, nothing to see here. This doesn't do anything. This doesn't save anybody. I'm not even sure why we do this other than it's in the New Testament. We can't get around it. Um, instead of saying all those things that baptism is not, some of which we might still need to say, uh, but instead of saying this, saying something more um, aligned with the earliest Baptist, which we're saying something very robust about. Which it, and again, which, of baptism. which is connected to what Christians have always said about baptism, right? I mean, that you can, in Greg Allison's um, book on ecclesiology, he lists out sort of six characteristics of the early church's view on baptism and, and how it's described. And you can take those six things and show how, I mean, that Smith quote or the, the short confession quote pretty much sums up those six things right there. Um, so early Baptists and, and some early Anabaptists at least were trying to connect what they were saying about baptism and about the Lord's Supper, because we could read quotes that, you know, similar kind of thing where they're saying, you know, Christ is present, feeding on Christ. Um, you know, it, 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 it's a union between the saints, uniting us together, the Holy Spirit, you know, all this, all of that language is in those confessions as well about the supper. And again, um, it's a thicker understanding of baptism and the Lord's Supper for Baptists today. It's also a re reflection of early Baptist desire to show how what they were saying is connected to the rest of the Christian tradition, even at the start. Um, so one last thing that I think we need to make clear here is that, again, <clears throat> to go back to where we started, Anabaptists are not Baptists and Baptists are not Anabaptists. So we would have to take another episode to try to talk through the distinctions there. But uh, Luke's mentioned one, oath-taking. Another thing you're going to find if you read through these Anabaptist confessions is a, um, a denial of the imputation of Adam's guilt uh, to infants in a lot of the early Anabaptist confessions um, and at least a couple of general Baptist confessions. Um, and, but in terms of Anabaptists in particular, you're also going to find uh, the sort of seeds of pacifism there of you know, denial of being able to be involved in the, the government. Um, that's probably the, the oath taking and the relationship between Christians and, and government is probably the biggest distinction between Baptists and Anabaptists, but then also their view on church discipline um, was quite a bit more strict than, than, than Bab the early Baptists. So those are some different ways in which um, Baptists and Anabaptists are not the same. Uh, we'd have to take another episode on that, but I just want to make that clear that although we're emphasizing that we can do this with both Anabaptists and Baptists as it relates to doctrine of God, sacraments, um, they're not the same. And, um, you know, it's important to, to make that clear. And we'll see that moving forward as we work through some of these later uh, primary texts.
Anything else you want to add before we go here, Luke? My last thought is just the 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 fact that the deeper we go into our own tradition, the deeper we go into Catholicity, right? So that our we should should value our tradition uh, because it's it's a kind of entryway into the full tradition, right? It's 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 not like going to the beginning and then stopping, but as we go, the deeper we go into our own tradition, the more rooted we will be in the great tradition that that stands behind it. That's right. Well, let's close then uh, with the grace. If you know it, you can say it out loud with me. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Amen. Amen.